Good morning. We have never had a morning with so many gremlins and AV issues. Welcome, welcome. My name is is Ross Gilbert, and we're excited to have you here. Um, We're really looking for, I'm really looking forward to what Father's got in store for all of us this morning uh, as we kind of continue on our, our study here in the book of Ephesians. Since uh, since I became an adult, I've discovered I have a, a real love for adventure, uh, especially going out into the wilderness of this wonderful land of ours. And and for me, the, the greater the challenge, the better. You know, the, I love the idea of, of, you know, paddling across the lake in Algonquin and then putting the canoe on your head and portaging across all kinds of up and down terrain, long and so forth. Just that, that challenge has always been such a, a thrill to my soul. And, and there's one such trip that we did um, uh, a number of years ago with some friends of mine. Uh, we went through this, in, in Algonquin Park, we went to this one um, lake called Vanishing Pond. And, and Vanishing Pond kind of, you know, lived up to its name. By the time we got there, um, you know, we were, we were in the middle of a long trip. And then what we were doing is we would, we would paddle and portage, paddle and portage, paddle and portage to get to a site and then, you know, stay there the night and then do the whole thing the next day, paddle and portage, paddle and portage and to another site and then do it all in, on the way out to make a big loop. And, and in the middle of that day, on the, we go Friday to Sunday and on the Saturday, we came across this lake called Vanishing Pond and it truly lived up to its name. It, the water level had dropped because there wasn't enough rain and, and so forth. So it wasn't enough that it was dry ground to walk across. It was this, this sludge, muddy swamp. Just enough that you couldn't paddle, though we tried. And, and in fact, you'd get stuck because you couldn't go anywhere. And so you'd start jumping up and down in the canoe, trying to get over this little bit of a place you were stuck on. We broke two canoes. And it was so bad. Yeah, it was that bad. It was so bad we actually had to get out and pull the canoe. And uh, so you're walking in, in, you know, muddy, swampy water up to your, your knees and, and, and so forth. And you're just dragging the canoe. And um, uh, Greg was there. And, and uh, you can ask him where he was, if he was in the swamp or in the canoe. You can ask him what he was doing. But, uh, but we're just kind of dragging these canoes along. And you get to the other side. And I, I remember by the time I got to the other side, kind of looking back over this, this marsh and... Uh, and I was just so proud. I just loved it. I mean, I was messy. I was dirty. It was swampy. But I loved every second of it and would do it again in a heartbeat. Right? So there's this idea, though, of being able to accomplish something and then kind of survey and look back on what you've just accomplished. Well, I kind of want to do that this morning because we're coming to near to the end of Ephesians chapter 1. And so I kind of want to take a moment and kind of reflect back on everything that Paul has been talking about here. Because really, the, the passage that we're going to study this morning is sort of the, the peak. Everything's been building up to this, this grand, glorious passage. These couple verses that Paul's going to kind of just put a big exclamation mark on everything. So he began in, in verse 3. Uh, of chapter one, where he was, he was talking about how blessed God is. We are to bless his name, bless God. Why? Because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessings. And so we have everything we could imagine. <clears throat> it says in verse four, how God, he's seen us and, and seeing us and knowing us, he then chooses us. And, and now that is a statement of how God actually wants us. He didn't get stuck with us. He didn't, he didn't kind of, you know, show up and all of a sudden he's there. He actually wanted you and I. 
And, and verse 5 talks about how um, God has guaranteed that this world is not the end for us, that we have something even better. We have something awaiting for us. And so as we're going to graduate to this full maturity, and the full maturity here, the, the adoptions of sons is, is speaking not to our salvation, but it's speaking to the redemption of our bodies, a new spiritual body that awaits us. And in verse 7, we saw how we've been totally forgiven. Every single sin, no matter how little, no matter how big, no matter how many times you've done it, every single sin has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the work on that cross. And so Jesus has paid that debt. We no longer owe anyone. He's released us of that debt. And in verse 13, we, he talked about this great inheritance that awaits us, an inheritance that awaits us after our time here, but, but something that we get to experience now, that he's given us a down payment on this inheritance. And the down payment, if you can believe it or not, is the Holy Spirit himself. You know, I, I would have figured that would be enough for the inheritance, but it's only a portion of the inheritance is the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. And so Paul, listing all these things, then he says, my prayer is that you will know in your mind three things. You'll know the hope of your calling. You will know what God did and what God accomplished on the cross. That, that you will discover the inheritance that we are to God. That God loves you so much that you are his treasure. That's how valuable you are to him. And the third thing we looked at last time that God wants us to know is the power that we have in us, the power of the Holy Spirit available to us that no matter what we face, no matter what challenge, what trial, for this we have Jesus. And he says, I want you to know these three things, not so you're just smarter, but this knowledge, this knowing of this will change and transform our intimacy with God that you and I can have an intimate relationship with him. And that's really what we're all after here. Paul's been magnifying and glorifying the greatness of Jesus Christ and God the Father in the hope that when we see how great and wonderful he is, that we will be drawn into that intimate relationship with him. And what's beautiful about this, it's a knowing of God that cannot be exhausted. It, you can't reach it to the point and go, I'm done, I'm finished, I know God fully. It's impossible. In the in the popular children's series, Chronicles of Narnia, by, written, written by C.S. Lewis, Jesus there, he's portrayed by, by the lion Aslan. And it's this beautiful picture. The, the first book he wrote, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, tells us, we int were introduced to these four kids, the Pevensey kids, and how, how that's a picture. One of the children, Edmund, he, he commits a crime. He, he betrays his, his family. And, and so Aslan has to die in his place in order that Edmund, Edmund can go free, in order that the ransom can be paid to the White Witch. And so this is a beautiful picture for a children's book to portray who Jesus is and the work of what he's done on that cross and how he's made us right and so forth. And, and so then they eventually leave this magical land of Narnia and go back home to England at the end of the book. Well, in the next book, the Prince Caspian, these four Pevensey kids, they come back to Narnia. They're transported back to this magical land. And, and Lucy, the youngest, she, she meets Aslan again. And she comments to Aslan. She says this, Aslan, you're bigger. And he answers, he says, that's because you're older, little one. Not, not because you're bigger. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. 
What a great picture that is, right? That every year we grow, every day that we grow in our faith, in our understanding, you will discover a God is bigger. There's a great title for a book, Your God is Too Small. I guarantee it. I guarantee no matter how big you think God is, your God is too small because he's bigger than anything we can imagine, anything that we can hope for. It's larger. And what's wonderful about this is that that's what's going to give us hope. That God is bigger than we can imagine. Gives us hope because what it does is it pulls us out of our small story and pulls us into a larger story. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones put it. He He said this, He said, much of the trouble in the church today is due to the fact that we're so subjective, so interested in ourselves, so egocentric. Having forgotten God and having become so interested in ourselves, we become miserable and wretched and spend our time in shallows and miseries. The message of the Bible from beginning to end is designed to bring us back to God, to humble us before God and to enable us to see our true relationship to him. See, we need to remember that that we're not the main or even the leading character in the story of our lives. We are a very important and much-loved supporting character to the main character, to the hero, which is Jesus. And if, if we can remember this, we can remember who we're with, we can become overwhelmed by his peace and his love. And I think my hope this morning is that we can begin to see that more and more, that we can see really the majesty of Jesus. That's, that's my heart this morning, that, that we're going to be awed and blown away by how majestic and wonderful he is. But I got to be upfront. I've been, I've been worried about this ever since God began to show that this is what I needed to speak about. Because how, how do I ever possibly come close to adequately portraying the majesty of Jesus? I mean, maybe, maybe if I was this great orator, great preacher like Charles Spurgeon, or, or someone like John Lynch or Malcolm Smith that just have this mastery of the English language, or, or maybe, maybe if I could paint pictures with colorful words like Josh Gordon, right? Maybe if I could do something like that, I'd have a chance at getting there. But then God reminds me in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 16, where Paul says about the majesty, about the greatness of God, he says, who is adequate to speak on such things? No one is. He's just too big. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to try because we're going to, but he is massive and he's huge and he's enormous. And that's my prayer this morning is that we will all see in another way, in a deeper way, how awesome this God is. So let's pray. Let's sorry, Let's read the passage we're going to look at. Um, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 to 22. We're going to focus in on verses 20, and, 20 to 22, but we'll start in verse 18 for some context. Paul here, he writes, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is to be named, 
not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we're going to do something that we hope will be powerful, and that is praise you. That we will worship you in a way that, well, really two effects. One, that you'll know how much we love you. But two, will draw us into even a deeper love affair with you. Because that's possible. And that's what we're craving. And so, Lord, you be the speaker through me. You be the teacher. And then take what I say and do something special in each of our hearts that you may be magnified. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, when, when Jesus came to earth uh, 2,000 years ago, he, he was a seemingly ordinary child. He was, he was born in the small town of Bethlehem. That wasn't anything special to anyone, really. He was born of a very young woman. She wasn't even old enough to be married. She was a teenager, so she's not even married yet. Born to a very poor and simple carpenter. And he, and he grew up in this little town called Nazareth that really had the only distinction of being undistinguishable. That, you know, who, whatever good could possibly come from Nazareth. So there was, there was really nothing about, you know, who he was. In fact, in Isaiah, where it talked about what he would look like, it says that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So he didn't even kind of stand out. Like he wasn't, he wasn't beautiful and, and wonderful to look at like Wes. He was more like Greg. That's more what we're thinking of, right? Very ordinary and simple. That sort of thinking, right? And so, so he shows up just very ordinary man. But he wasn't ordinary at all. Not only was he the son of man, he was also the son of God. But he lived as an ordinary man, thereby living as an extraordinary life. Let me explain what I mean by that. In Philippians 2, 5 to 8, Paul writes this about the mindset of Jesus, having this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he exists in the form of God, although he is God, was God, always will be God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold on to living like God. He let go of living like God. He let go of all of his rights and he came and he lived as man. Lived as a man in a way of simple, humble dependence on Jesus, on, on Father God in him. So he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Jesus walked this earth some 2,000 years ago, he walked the earth without holding on to or displaying his true position as God. He didn't hold on to that. Nobody really saw the true majesty of the Lord God Almighty. He lived a life in humility, in service, and let go of all of his rights. But after, after what was accomplished on the cross, everything changed. Because of the great work that Jesus did, Father God highly exalts him. So it goes on to say in verses uh, 8, 8, 9, and 10, for this reason, 
God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, one day soon, I just don't know if soon is in my lifetime or not, but one day soon, Jesus will return. And and when he returns, he's not coming in the humble form that he first came. He's not coming as this humble son of a carpenter. He's not coming, you know, from this little town that nobody knows about. He's going to come in all his majesty and all his royalty. And in the book of Revelation, the apostle John had a picture of this. And, and he, he was able to kind of describe what this was going to look like. And so in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16, it says this. John says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that it may, with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. That's who we're going to see when he returns. King of Kings, Lord of Lords, King Jesus. You know, that's, that's a phrase, King Jesus. I, I heard that a lot growing up, but I don't hear that so much anymore. It, it sort of kind of disappeared in our, in our vernacular. And, and, and it's, in part because we've emphasized so much about the friendship of Jesus, that Jesus is our friend. He's our best friend. He's, he's our older brother, and he's the, the bride of Christ. He's our groom and, and our husband, and all these wonderful pictures. And I love those pictures, and they're great pictures because they show the intimacy we have with God, with Jesus. But we, it's not an either-or. It's a both-and. He is our best friend. He is our older brother. He is all of that. But he's also king of kings, lord of lords. He is this majestic ruler. And he is all that because God made him that way. Let's go back to our passage in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 20 and 21. Here we read that God raised Jesus. God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. That Jesus is willing to humble himself and come to earth and, and do the incredible, powerful work on the cross. And because of that, God raises him up, exalts him, places him at his right hand over all things. And, and the list here is kind of cool. He, he says he's far above all rule. The word there, it speaks to chief. It's the first. 
It's sort of like here in Canada, the prime minister, he's really just the first minister of all the ministers of cabinet. And that's why he's the prime minister. He's the chief minister, we could call him. And, and Jesus is above all the chiefs, all the first, all the, the world leaders. He's, he's above, far above all authority. And here, the word for authority speaks to jurisdiction, government powers, ruling powers and officials. He's far above all power. And this would speak specifically to spiritual powers. He's over the angels, but he's over the demons as well. In fact, even Satan is under the authority of Jesus Christ. He's over all dominions, all governments. The root word here that's translated as dominion is is the same word we use for Lord. So he's over all the lords, all the lordships, and he's far above all them. And not only that, but every name that is to be named for all time. And the word here, name, refers to titles or positions of people who have any kind of power and authority. You know, we, we love titles in our world, don't we? We have all kinds of different titles, and, and these titles refer to all kinds of different things. And, and often what happens is people, they're always seeking the next tier, the next level of that title and that power and that authority. And so, for example, in business, we got titles like manager. And then there's senior manager. And then maybe you get to graduate to vice president. And then there's the senior vice president. And then there's the executive vice president. And then there's the senior executive vice president of sales in North Dakota, right? So he's like all these different titles, all trying to show that we're, we're, we're bigger and better. And then there's the president and CEO and CFO and COO and chairman of the board and vice chair and on and on it goes. We have this in the religious world, right? We have titles like, like pastor and senior pastor and elder and deacon and bishop and archbishop and cardinal and pope, all trying to show majesty in their titles. When I was, when I was ordained, they, they wanted to call me Reverend Gilbert. Isn't that funny, Anna? That's pretty cute, isn't it? Reverend Gilbert. I put a quick stop to that one. I really did. Because reverend refers to revered one. And there's only one revered one. And that's Jesus Christ. So I said, no, 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 no. We're not going with that one. I'll take pastor. That's, that's okay. That's a biblical term. That just speaks to a shepherd. Right? So I'm, I'm Pastor Ross, but, but I'm not a reverend. There's only one reverend, and that's Jesus Christ. The ancient world, though, were great for their titles. Right? They had titles like Pharaoh and Chancellor and Caesar. And then Caesar Augustus. And then emperor and your lordship and your highness and your royal highness and majesty and your sovereign and king. All these wonderful titles. Charlemagne, though, wasn't satisfied with that. He was the king of the Franks. And he thought, I want more than that. So I want to be called Holy Roman Emperor. Right? Because it just denotes more power. The military, we see this. We have brigadier general, major general, lieutenant general, one star, two star, three star, four star generals. My favorite title, though, this is, if I could pick one title, I'd probably pick this one. This one's my favorite one, Supreme Allied Commander. I mean, isn't that just really cool? Like, I would have that on a business card, and I would hand that out wherever I went. Like, I'd meet strangers and say, here's my business card. I'm Supreme Allied Commander. Like, that's, that's just really cool. I got to say, I respect that one, right? So, so we have all these titles, 
And, and my issue isn't with the titles, because the titles are wonderful. The titles denote authority, and that authority is important. It, it plays a key role. Because could you, could you imagine being in a battlefield, in a, in, a, in a war, where nobody had any kind of authority, where everyone was just their own, their own little boss, and they're all barking out orders, and they're all doing things, and everyone's running in every which way. What's going to happen? They're all going to get picked off one by one and quickly lose. So authority's not wrong. Authority's wonderful. It's God-given. The titles aren't wrong. The issue here that I want you to see is that every name, every title, every authority, be it large or small, all of it is under, subjected to the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. All things, all people are subject to him. Now, please be understand, that doesn't mean everyone and everything is obedient to that power. Right? We're all, we're all subject to the laws of this land. We're all subject to the traffic laws. That doesn't mean everybody drives a speed limit. That doesn't mean nobody goes through red lights but we're all under the authority of it and therefore subject to the consequences of that authority as well. And that's what's happened here is it doesn't mean that God now, because he has all this authority, controls all things because he doesn't impose that level of control, although at times we wish he would, but he is nonetheless over all of it. And therefore everything and everyone is accountable to him. So in the same way, all of humanity, all the spiritual realm, including angels and demons, even Satan himself, all of life and death, all of creation belongs to is under the authority and subjection of Jesus Christ. There is only one Lord. That's Jesus. This is the one we serve. This is the one we belong to. This is the one whose family we're a part of. And this is the one that loves you and I. If we reject him and his authority, we're choosing death. But when we recognize him as Lord, when we recognize his authority and recognize who he is, then we get to choose life. But what's amazing about this is Jesus is way more than just King of Kings and Lord of Lords, especially to us. The writer of, to, to the letter of Hebrews in trying to describe who Jesus was, he was comparing Jesus to the, the key pillars of Jewish history. He was comparing Jesus to all the prophets, to prophets like Elijah and Samuel and Elisha and, and, and all the prophets. And he was saying, Jesus is better than all the prophets. He, he's better than the angels, he goes on to say. He's, he's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. And then he says, Jesus is even better than all the Levitical priests. He's better than Aaron and all the other priests because Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is, a, is an interesting figure. And before we get into and understand who Melchizedek is, let's understand what it means to be a priest. So the, the Latin word for priest is pontifex, and it literally is a combination of two words, so it could be translated as bridge builder. And I think that's a great picture of what a priest is meant to be. They're a bridge builder. They're a mediator. And so what, what a priest is supposed to do is a priest is to represent uh, man to God and God to man. 
And so you would see that in the Old Testament where the children of Israel would come to the priest or the high priest and they'd offer their sacrifice and the sacrifice would then, the, the priest would take that and then go offer that sacrifice on their behalf to God. And so the priest was representing man to God. But then they could do it the other way around and they'd come back and they would then speak to the people, thereby representing God to man. And so that's the role of this priest here. They're this, this bridge builder, this mediator between both parties. Well, it says Jesus was the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a really interesting, mysterious figure. Very little is said about him. But, but what is said of him is basically legend. It's, you know, it's, all we know is what we don't know, really. We don't know his genealogy. He, it says that he, no one knows who his parents are. And that may not sound like a big deal today, but it's a really big deal when you think about how when people had introduced themselves, they would introduce themselves such as, hi, my name is Ross, son of Les. Right? We read about Joshua, son of Nun. Right? That was how you introduced yourself. And yet Melchizedek, he had nobody. He was just Melchizedek. So we don't know where he came from. All we know about him was that he was a contemporary of Abraham and he was the king of Jerusalem, although at the time it was called Salem. And he was the high priest of God. That's it. That's all we know. He was a king and a high priest. And it says that Jesus was of the same type, the same kind, the same order as Melchizedek. Now, why is that significant? Well, because in the Old Testament with the Jews, the priest could never be the king and the king could never be the priest. They came from two very different tribes. You see, the, the priest, in order to be a priest, you had to be born a Levite. You had to be from the, the tribe of Levi. That was the only way you could be a priest. And to be a high priest, you had to be from the line of Aaron. That was the only way there. And so, you know, if, if you were born a Levite, you had a chance at being a priest. But to be a king, you had to be born of a different tribe. You'd be born of the tribe of Judah, specifically from the house of David. And so you had these two different tribes. So the king could never be the priest. and The priest can never be the king. Until along comes Jesus. And Jesus isn't trying to become a Levitical priest. He's something better than that. He's a, he is a royal priest. He is both king of kings and lord of lords. And our high priest. So what does that mean? How is that significant to you and I today? Well, he is our, bri- our bridge builder. And, and not just the bridge builder that paved the way for salvation, although that's true. He did do that. On the cross, he, he wiped away our sins. He paid the debt that we owed so that we could be in relationship with him. And, and he created this bridge back and forth. That is absolutely true. But he did something more now as our mediator. Not only does, does he represent you to God the Father, but he represents God the Father to you and I. In, in the person of Jesus, in the, in the face of Jesus, you get to discover the heart of God towards you. you I, I hope you begin to discover the love and the pa- compassion and the mercy that Father God has for you and I in the face and in the person of Jesus Christ. But how do, I, how do I adequately express that? 
How do I, how do I share in a way that is powerful and meaningful the significance of how much Jesus loves us, cares for us, the the, the, the fact that he is our, our priest, he is our mediator, he is our bridge builder, he is the one representing us to God and God to us. And that's where I struggled all week. Who is adequate for such things? Because I don't want you just to hear it and go, yep, yep, I know that. It's not just an intellectual knowledge I want us to know here. I want us to know in our hearts. I want us to know in a way that will transform our level of faith in him. That, that it will send you running to him at the slightest moment of trouble. It will send you running to him at the slightest moment of joy. It will send you running to him at the slightest moment of boredom. That we will be drawn to him. And so what I think I want to do to kind of help make that point is is I want to start with a psalm. I want to read a psalm. It's, it's by King David. I think that's really significant because it's King David and he is, he is praising a, the king of kings. And I think that's really powerful here. One king to the king of kings. And, and so we're going to read the psalm. And, and one day maybe we'll, we'll pause and we'll take a lot more time and really kind of study this psalm out and, and really investigate what's in there and what it means. But th- this morning, we're just going to kind of read it with minor commentary in there. But King David, he writes this. He says, I will exalt you, my God, O king. I will bless your name forever and ever. The king to the king of kings. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. You'll never find the limit of it. That's what I've been wrestling with all week. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. So what we get to do is tell our kids how wonderful, how great God is. So they can tell their kids and their kids and their kids. We can tell the stories of how God has not just impacted those who've come before us in reading the stories of Israel and and reading the lives of the apostles, but also in your own family, in your lives, you get to share all those stories with your kids. On the glorious splendor, splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. That's what we're doing this morning pausing and reflecting on how great he is. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and shout joyfully of your righteousness. King of kings, Lord of lords, the majesty and the splendor of Jesus. But remember, he's also your high priest. So David goes on to write, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. This loving kindness is a, the word here in Hebrew speaks to a covenantal love, a love that is unbreakable, unchangeable. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. 
All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. And your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. To make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. I don't know what kind of week you've had, what kind of month you've had, what kind of year you've had, or even what kind of life you've had. It doesn't matter what sin you've done, what sins have been done to you, what you're struggling with, what you are currently struggling with, the shame, the guilt, the remorse, the regrets. Your high priest, the King of Kings, will meet you where you're at. And when you're bent over and you just think, I can't do anything, he comes and he lifts you up. And that that blows my mind. You know, in the Old Testament, whenever someone would have an encounter with God, what was their posture? Nose, face first in the dirt, right? And if you get two inches below the dirt line, even better. Why? What are they declaring when they prostrated themselves before God? I am unworthy. I I cannot stand in your presence. I, I deserve to be struck down. It's not enough to take a knee and bow. They would go face first into the dirt. But in the New Testament, the New Testament is different. In Jude, it says that God is able to make you stand. Think about that. Steve, when when you meet Jesus face to face, you might feel that the, the urge to go face first in the dirt. In fact, I don't know anybody that can confidently stand all proud and ready to go. I think everyone's knees will be shaken and wanting to go face first in the dirt and prostrate themselves before God. And you know what Jesus would do to Steve? Stand up, my son. You don't need to do that. Because what I have done as your bridge builder, as your mediator, has made it possible that you can stand with me. And that's what I crave. That's what I long for. That's our King of Kings, Lord of Lords. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. He provides, he cares for us, he protects Everything we need is in him. I mean, everything. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. It doesn't always feel that way. It doesn't always feel like everything's working right. But please understand, he sees the bigger picture. He knows what he's doing. And he's working all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, He's working all things to your glory. For those who love him, he's working all things for our good. And so the Lord is near to all who call upon him, 
to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in the praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. That's our Jesus. That's our King of Kings, Lord of Lords, our high priest. That, that's the one that I hope we will be able to see the majesty and lift up and the wonder because it, it doesn't diminish us. It draws us into a greater love affair with him. One that he's inviting us into. We love who you are and what you've done And we are overwhelmed by the simple truth that you, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, love us. Unlimited unlimited love, perfect love, never changing love. A love that cannot diminish nor can it even increase based on what we do. You simply love us. So we praise your name. We thank you for that. And as we leave here today, Lord Jesus... My prayer is that we will be humbled and reminded of the the nearness that you are to us. Amen.